I am afraid I have never done anything remotely resembling what you describe, said Strange. It seems rather complicated and I do not think it would work. As to how I do magic, there are many, many procedures, as many, I dare say, as for making war. I should like to do magic, said the fox-haired, fox-faced gentleman at the other end of the table. I should have a ball every night with fairy music and fairy fireworks and I would summon all the most beautiful women out of history to attend. Helen of Troy, Cleopatra, Lucretia Borgia, Maid Marian and Madame Pompadour. I should bring them all here to dance with you fellows. And when the French appeared on the horizon, I would just... He waved his arm vaguely. Do something, you know, and they would all fall down dead. Can a magician kill a man by magic? Lord Wellington asked Strange. Strange frowned. He seemed to dislike the question. I suppose a magician might, he admitted. But a gentleman never could. Susanna Clark's first novel is Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. Welcome to Fine Print. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here speaking to you. Susanna, this is an interesting novel, a novel of boundaries, boundaries broken in a number of ways, isn't it? I guess so. I mean, several people have talked to me about the different genres that they think this might fit into. When I was writing it, I wasn't really considering genre or categories at all. I was really just writing the book that I thought I might like to read. uh, And therefore, I went where I felt drawn. But there are also boundaries within the world broken as well, aren't there? between the world of fairy, the other world, and the world of England. That's right. Um, It's set in a version of England which has had magic in the past, where in fact, in the medieval period, half of England, the northern half, has been a separate kingdom, and it's been ruled by a magician king, the Raven King. But by the time the novel begins in the early 1800s, Magic has died away and the fairies have disappeared. And so it's largely about the attempts of two magicians to restore magic to England. And one of them particularly is interested in um, fairies and bringing them back too. Could you talk to us about the two main characters here? They're very different in temperament. Yeah, they were kind of set up to be that way. Um, Norrell is the first magician to in this period to successfully do practical magic and he is um, he's a rich man he's a man who's amassed a huge library of books of magic which he is very reluctant to let anyone else see and he is shy and he is fussy and he is a sort of archetypal scholar a person who you would imagine um has spent his whole life reading books in a library with with a sort of slightly old-fashioned clothes and an old-fashioned wig. And he's jealous, but he is a remarkably good scholar. He has no people skills whatsoever. He has very difficult... He has difficulty telling a good person from a bad person, which leads him into some difficulties. And Strange is the opposite. He is tall and he is outgoing and he is charming and talkative and has a sense of humour. But he's also a bit arrogant um, and he's prone to rush into things without thinking. Norrell suffers from an almost crippling insecurity. I wanted you to talk a little bit about magic, 
insecurity and this fear almost of omnipotence. Because once you open the door to magic, there seems to be no end. Or the only end in sight is master of all the creation. I think Norrell's fear comes not so much from his own, a fear of his own power, but a fear of, yeah, a fear, a fear of the magic of fairies and a fear of the magic of the Raven King and therefore a fear of what magic, English magic really is. He is, um, he's not only insecure and jealous, but he's also, the, the good side of that is that he's, he uses thing, magic on the whole, not always, but on the whole fairly respons- responsibly. He's, he's anxious to protect um, England from the consequences of of the revival of English magic. He wants the revival of English magic, but he knows that it could open the door to all sorts of things, and he is he is trying to protect the world from that. But unfortunately, this is never the way. Once you start, um, once you start exploring knowledge, you can't set boundaries in these artificial ways, and that's what he learns. Could you tell us a little bit about? the technology of magic in your world, how it works. And it's a very interesting connection here because you've written a beautiful and long novel. And magic grows out of language, out of spells. And it's an in, in spell, of course, has two meanings. And they're both very interestingly conveyed in this novel, aren't they? The, the, the sort of magic that the two magicians do changed quite a lot, I think, in the course of the the novel the, the sort of at the beginning it is all about books and it stems from Norrell's library so it is a matter of books with wonderful titles and spells with interesting titles and it is all a matter of words at that point but as the novel progresses it the, the nature of English magic changes somewhat and the idea behind it is that it was that the originally magi- English magicians got their magic from fairies when there still was a connection between England and fairy. And fairy magic would have been a very simple thing. It would have been a matter of of talking to stones and talking to trees and talking to the landscape and the world itself. So as the, as the novel progresses, magic becomes more of an aspect of England itself and it comes out of the English landscape. This is an interesting uh, subject too because your novel really is in part about the relationship between the nation of England and the fantastic. I wasn't particularly aware as I went along of of the things I was drawing upon. It was only after I'd finished and people started talking to me about this that I had to sort of start retracing my steps somewhat and think, well, where did I get this? A lot of it comes out of the books I read as a child, which were books like C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia and E. Nesbitt's Edwardian fables, some of which were... uh, children's books some of which were quite realistic and some of which were fantastic the phoenix and the carpet and the those sorts of books and in all of these people cleverer than I and who've thought about this longer than I have have said that that English that English fantasy writing is very often about the juxtaposition of the magical and the mundane magic actually comes out of rather mundane 
situations. And I think there's there's a lot in that. That's something that I've tried to to put into my own work, but trying to make magic seem real by juxtaposing it with with quite mundane goings on and making magic seem difficult so that it's um, it's like other technologies. It's like other forms of knowledge. It brings as many problems as it solves. For the fairy aspect, I did draw upon actual fairy beliefs of England, but also of Scotland and Wales and Ireland, where, where it, in the latter three countries, fairly fairy um, law was more developed than it was in England, or rather we probably lost, lost, it lost coherence in England earlier. And so people in the British Isles for a long period of time had this sense of the other world not being very far away. Every English field was once inhabited by a whole different range of fairies and we kept this belief probably up until the 19th century. You know, the, the mysterious and eerie world which is only just round the corner. So, so I've tried to get that into the book as well. One of the real pleasures of this book is the beautiful literary heritage that you follow. Dickens, Jane Austen. How did you decide to write a novel? And you wrote it in a, in a Victorian style. It's written in a decidedly Victorian style. It's not just a modern novel about Victorian times, about the 1800s. It, it's a novel written in the style of the time from which it comes. How did you decide combine the literary genre and the fantastic genre? There were probably two influences here. The first was Charles Pallas's The Quincunks, which was a book I read probably in about 1990, a couple of years before I started writing Strange and Norrell. And that is a sort of Charles Dickens, Wilkie Collins kind of mystery. It's a great big book and it's written in the style of the era and it's, it explores lots and lots of different social levels of, of that time and that was the first book that made me think yes you can write a 19th century novel in the late 20th century which was a revelation to me and and the other thing was Jane Austen I've, I've loved her books for so long and I feel so at home with her style I know it so well that it was actually not that difficult to slip it on not that I think the style is made up from with other things as well as Jane Austen because her style her books are peculiarly about the domestic sphere and the sphere of women and once you get out into the political sphere and the military sphere and, and you get out into the wider world you have to draw on other writers and I think I notably I drew on Dickens as well but um I really like 19th century novels, so I wanted to write one properly. Could you talk a little bit about one of the major characters in this novel, Lord Wellington? Tell us a little bit about your research and how you found out about him and how you created him and inserted such a great real character and yet brought out his reactions to the fantastic so well. I started... At one point, I realised that I that it would be a great idea to try and insert some real characters into this. And to me, the 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 sort of creative muscles that you need to do to recreate a, a character who lived two hundred 
years ago are not that different from the creative muscles you use to create a completely imaginary character. You've just, all it means is you've got a few starting points here. So it wasn't like there was any great difference in the creative process. But I read some biographies of Wellington and I just found myself completely taken over by this character because he's a character that we we don't get these days he was a soldier and a statesman and a politician but he was also adored by people in Britain as if he were a rock star or something um, so he he sort of combined all sorts of celebrities in a way we don't have now and he had such great lines he was the um, the original person to say publish and be damned and and he, he had a, this great he, he was quite an imaginative man he, he was great at lateral thinking although that was not what it was called then he could cut through problems and just push them out of the way while other people were still standing around scratching their heads so I found that I could just after I'd read enough about him and, and, and sort of got his voice in my head, I found that I could been, begin to write in what I hoped was a Wellingtonian way. But he was a great character to put against Jonathan Strange because when the two of them were in the room, it wasn't everyone was saying, oh, look, a real magician. People were saying, oh, look, Claude Wellington. And Strange became the lesser of the two, which was an interesting thing. One of the things that I found fascinating in this novel was the way you had Jonathan Strange develop the military uses of magic. It's really weapons of mass deception, isn't it? Yes, he shifts he shifts things about um, and confuses the enemy and he creates illusions of sort of dragons and so forth to harass them. But he also does some slightly more useful things. He moves roads to and creates roads to take armies where they need to go. It was good fun. I had to do quite a bit of reading in of, of military history before I because I wanted to get a real sense of, you know, what actually would have been useful. And of course what they needed were very practical things like their boots were all were or the soldiers' boots were always wearing out because they marched so much. Cause obviously better roads would be a really useful thing. That brings up the topic of research and the amount of time you spent writing this novel. When you started this novel, did you think, well, this is going to take the next 10 years of my life? Absolutely not. And if I had done, I don't know that I would have started. At the beginning, I think I thought it would take a couple of years. I knew I wasn't a, a quick writer, but I had no idea it would, it would take so long. But I found that after I'd done a couple of years that there were some serious problems with particularly with the early part of the novel I had to go back and start again which was very hard and after that it's the years just piled up the, the latter part of this was the hardest because I still felt I was quite a long way I'd spent so much time and I had so much material but it was still I was still some way off during this time you were publishing some short stories I know you had a story in Ellen Datlow's year's best horror and fantasy could you tell us a little bit about just the practical parts of you're writing a long novel, you want to make some money out of it, even if it's not quite done yet? The money aspect didn't really come into it because I was working full time. And to be honest, I didn't, at that time, I didn't really see writing as a way to make money. I was just, when I was about a year into the novel, I wrote a short story about Jonathan Strange and Mr. Nara, and that was published. 
Who published it? It was published by in Patrick Nielsen Hayden's Starlight One. It's called The Ladies of Grassadure. And I wrote it for a writing course. I went on a writing course and they wanted a short story, which annoyed me because I, I was writing a novel. So I wrote this. I sort of got round it by writing a short story about my the two main characters of my novel. And then it was, was published. And I was advised that it might not be a bad idea once I'd started writing short stories and once I've been so successful as to get it into it, Patrick's anthology that it would be a good idea to continue writing a short story every now and then just to sort of get my name out there so while I was writing Jonathan Strange and Mr Norrell I wrote six subsequent short stories and none of them were Strange and Norrell stories but they were all kind of in the same area they were historical fairy tales or historical fantasies did any of them end up in the novel no no only the first one the first one there is a sort of space in the book and I think I've got a footnote which connects the the short story to the novel but no although I think they they might kind of join up at the back I I kind of think it might be they might all turn out to be in the same world one of your storytelling methods seems to be the reason I brought that up is because you do have a lot of stories within stories there's a, a footnote that is an entire self-contained short story. In and of itself, it's a beautiful footnote. Could you tell us a little bit about how and when you decided to put these stories within stories? And, and it feeds into something within the novel itself about the epitome spell that contains concentrated spells to expand a spell, which is essentially what you're doing. I kind of pictured the footnotes in my own mind as if they were little brightly colored pictures in the margin of an illuminated manuscript they were sort of almost like tiny windows into another world notably the medieval world that underpins Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell I mean I think all the information you absolutely need the sort of hard information about the medieval setup is contained in the main narrative but I wanted to do more than that I wanted because the medieval world is the world that the magicians have lost, the world where they had um, um, sort of fairies. They had, they were able to talk to them. They were able to get knowledge. They were able to travel to fairy. There were lots of magicians. That's the world they've lost. So I wanted to give a flavour of what that world was like. And that was, that was certainly one of the functions of the footnotes. And so some of them did expand into little folk tales that maybe people told each other at the time the novel said. One has a feeling reading this novel too that we're really only seeing the tip of the iceberg. Is that the case? Yeah, I think I intended to give that idea and that's not to say I know the whole iceberg, but yes, like there is there's certainly there's stuff I know about this world that I haven't put in the book, particularly the early stuff. Why did you decide to create the Raven King, or how did you create that character who's so important but almost really doesn't come into the narrative? When I was thinking about the book very, very early on, I made lots of notes and wrote scraps of scenes and bits of stories to sort of see how this world was working out. And at that time, I had two parallel narratives. I had this Raven King story that I was writing. And I also had the story of these two magicians much, much later on, 
the two men who became strange and gnarl. And I was playing with these two aspects of this world. And at that time, I was undecided which of them I was going to focus on. And then I realized what I had to focus on was the later story, but look back to the earlier story. So the Raven King was um, was a character that was with me from the beginning. He's at least as old as Strange and Norrell in the process. I wanted, my, my, my the seed from which he came was, I wanted a magician without a name because I reckoned Ursula Gwynn has a, a magician without a name. Tolkien has a magician without a name. It's really cool to have a magician without a name. So I wanted one. Unfortunately, I hadn't quite realised the consequences of having a major character without a name. And as a, and he's he's the result has been that he's acquired more names than everybody else in the in the book. I like characters that are hidden. I like characters that don't appear, but that exert a strong influence on the story. I find that I find that very interesting. It gives the narrative a real feeling of depth, and the reader feels very immersed in this world because there's a lot more to it than we can see. I'm wondering, I want to talk about fairy tales as precursors to urban legends, as moral tales built in. Without morals, sometimes they're just simply vignettes of a lost lifestyle. How do fairy tales play into this particular narrative? I, I think all of the things you've just said are true. A lot of the research that I did focused on how how fairies actually lived how, or how people in England and Scotland and Wales and Ireland thought they lived. They lived in, in hollow hills and they stole children and men and women, particularly nursing mothers was a great favourite to nurse fairy babies. When you start looking at the at the the actual folklore, sometimes fairies do good and sometimes they do bad and it's very difficult to predict which they're going to do. They might give you a bag of gold at one moment and poke your eye out at the next. And I kind of feel this is a sign that they that their morality is either very different from ours or they don't understand about morality at all so I wanted to give when when she started looking at actual fairy tales as as in tales of fairies rather than you know the sorts of things that come from 18th century court tales which are quite different when she start looking at these you you get this strong sense of alienness I mean there are all these stories which are the the stories of alien abduction for their time of people being taken away by an alien race and kept for a long time. It's been pointed out by many people that there are many similarities between the, the appearances of fairies and the appearances of ETs. One thing that, that interests me, what kind of books, I mean, where where do you find these tales of fairies? I mean, what kind of books were you were you looking at um, to find them? The, the British writer on whom I relied was a woman called Catherine M. Briggs, who was a folklorist in the mid-20th century. I think she may have died in the 70s or 80s, but she's a highly well-respected scholar who collected what was what remained of British folk tales and also other Northern European folk tales. She got other women to help her or drew upon women's institutes, which are sort of uh, guilds of country women still going in, in, in Britain, in England. They, at, in the mid-20th century, they got together, and I mean, because they knew lots of country people. They, they collected 
what you know what was left which was maybe not much but um was something so and some of these are quite new and some of them you feel are very old and most are in between let's talk about the way fairies are within your novel i would describe them as being corrupted innocence and immature omnipotence a combination of the two Yes, I think the innocence is very important in that. They can do dreadful things but still be innocent at the end of it because they have, I think, many of them no perception that what they are doing is, is wrong. There was a picture in a comic, one, a Sandman comic, one of Neil Gaiman's Sandman comics, and he in his World End series he did a little fairy story and there was one picture of the fa- a fairy, just a close-up of his face in that comic, which I often referred back to, because there was such innocence yet wildness in the expression of the eyes. Unfortunately, I can't remember at this point the, the name of the um, artist, but I thought he'd really captured something. So I'd look at this picture and think that mixture of dangerousness and wildness, but innocence as well, is that's what I've got to get into this book. I like also the breaking down of the boundaries of the wandering in and out of the roads of a fairy could you tell us did you walk go for walks to try to simulate these in england particularly in derbyshire where where i go quite a lot there are a lot of lanes which are simply between villages from the times when people walked everywhere or or rode and some of these have been turned into roads for cars and some of them haven't. And the ones that haven't are between stone walls and they're overgrown, they're green, they're full of wildflowers in the summer and sometimes you can pass through them and sometimes you can't. And these green lanes, although I know they have a perfectly rational and ordinary sort of genesis, they look very mysterious to me. They look very romantic. And so from kind of thinking about them, I kind of got to this idea of fairy roads which were in the medieval period usable roads which led from fairy sorry from england to fairy and back again or maybe between two places in england via fairy you know a different route but which are now closed and empty and therefore quite eerie to to english people and it was at the beginning it was just an image that i really liked but but as the novel progressed i, I began to think of more uses for these could you tell us a little bit about alternate history and secret history? You have a bit of both in your novel. As you wrote it, did you look at some of the current modern examples or even some of the progenitors of alternate history, Ward Moore's Bring the Jubilee, even to a certain extent some of Wells' work, Edward Bellamy, has a feeling of alternate history? No, I'm I'm afraid I'm not familiar with any of those people. The The one writer who I think may have influenced me in this a bit was Joan Aiken who I'm not sure is well known in the states despite the fact that she is uh, she or rather she was she recently died she's either half American or fully American she lived between um, she spent her time half time in England half time in New York she wrote a series of children's books were very well known in England the wolves of Willoughby Chase um, the whispering mountain and they describe an alternate history of England, one where wolves are still roam English um, through through Victorian England. They're very exciting, extraordinarily atmospheric. 
And so I think there was something of that in the back of my mind. What's interesting about your work is that you bring to it the sensibility of Dickens and Austen, but also Neil Gaiman and Alan Moore. Tell us a little bit about the latter two and how, how they played into your work. You wrote a episode for Sandman, didn't you? I wrote a prose story for for Sandman. There was, in fact, I still I think that one's still in print. Books of Magic is a collection of prose stories by other writers on the on Sandman. And yes, I, I did write one, a sort of seventeenth century Sandman story. I first came across Alan Moore in I went. Probably the mid eighties, just after Watchmen had happened, and I was completely bowled over by Watchmen. I just thought that was a book that almost made me sick. It possessed me so much. I could, um, it was one of those books you could barely put down, and I, I had to put it down at one point and go to sleep because it's the middle of the night, and I had to go out to work. And I think it just haunted the colours haunted my dreams all night. Um, and I, uh, the next day I just felt ill till I could get back to the book. It was the most extraordinary experience. And I, I don't know that I've learned anything as a writer from Alan Moore other, th- other than it's really useful to be Alan Moore because then you're kind of better than everybody else. Um, I think his storytelling is superb when he's off on one of his virtuoso trips doing something which no other writer would think was technically possible. He's he's just amazing. I think I've learnt more from Neil because I think Neil is is superb writer. He's a superb storyteller. He's a superb creator of characters. And, and as I say, I think his idea of fairy and mine are, are fairly close. I also love the fact that like a lot of writers that I love, he's 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 someone who can put humour and darkness very close together, and I love that juxtaposition of light and dark in a story. I I always like stories that have got humour, but I like darkness as well. You have a, quite a bit of both in your novel, and one of the things I think you do very well is to create an atmosphere of fear and terror, but you ratchet it back. I had no idea I could do this. I just I knew that at some points in the book it was going to get very dark. And so I I had to sort of sit and think, well, how am I going to do this? And it was an interesting one. I didn't study anything particular. The only thing I did for the darkest moments was I played Fleetwood Mac's Green Manalishi over and over again. And that seemed to do the trick, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about the elements of style in your novel. It's very stylized. It, it is does read like a 19th century novel. I referred constantly back to Jane Austen, not only for dialogue, but also for the way that words and grammar were used in those days, which is slightly different. They had sometimes in a sentence, they'd have a different word order. Sometimes a word has, has got a more general meaning now, whereas she would use it much more precisely. So I looked at all of this so that I could get as close to an early 19th century style as I could. And I used some of her spellings as well, just to sort of give a flavour, because I feel that if you see a different spelling on the page, it just gives you the sense that you're reading an old book. But you also did this too with the way you unveiled your plot. As you wrote this novel, did you have an idea what the overall story arc was? Yeah, I've I had a... A story arc was pretty much what I had in my head. I could almost see it like an arc, like a like a graph plotted in my mind. 
I could I knew when it was going to be dark when it was going to be lighter I knew roughly where the characters in the world would be when the story ended and I knew where the major events of the novel were plotted in that but it was very it was very broad there was no detail in that and generally I only know a few chapters ahead how it's going to be you've written a really long book yeah that's true but it doesn't feel like it's the whole story No, there's certainly more at the beginning that I know, the medieval story. And as I was finishing, as I was in the last stages of writing Jonathan Strange, Mr. Noir, this other character started to come into my head. Not that he belonged in this book, but rather as Strange and Norrell had rather taken me over at the beginning of this book, he began to sort of just come unbidden into my head. And I began to realise that he was probably part of this world too so yeah I think there's there's more to say and I think there's probably more to say about the world about the the alternate history of England so can we expect a sequel are you working on one well it's going to be a book set in the same world that starts a few years after Stranger Nora finishes so in that sense a sequel but it will focus on other characters I got particularly interested as I was writing both in the servants and also in the people a bit lower down the social scale. Uh, Strange and Norrell are both very rich men. They needn't work unless they want to. And I became a bit more interested in people who struggled a bit more. And I also wanted to say a bit more about the women. There are two women characters in Strange and Norrell and they I think they are very influential but again they are rather hidden characters and I'm hoping in the next book the the female characters will play a more overt part. Do you plan on taking 10 years to create it? I don't plan on doing that but then I didn't plan on doing that in the beginning either and I'm I'm certainly hoping I'll be able to to do it a bit quicker this time. I don't have the full-time job anymore so that's that's one obstacle out of the way. I wonder if you could talk a little bit, too, about being a writer with her first novel and being on the receiving end of an enormous publicity campaign and an enormous first printing. How does that feel? It feels very, very good. I mean, most first, there's often a lot of complaint that first novels are not given a big publicity push or much of a publicity push at all. And I certainly can't complain about that. So it is, it is absolutely fabulous. The large first printing was a little bit nerve wracking because I've worked in publishing and I kind of know what's riding on this sort of thing. But so I sort of said in a worried kind of way, are you sure you can sell these books? And they said, yes, we are. So I thought, okay, you know, let the people do their jobs. So it's been very, very exciting and a bit overwhelming. But I have plenty of people who will help me keep my feet on the ground. So it's okay. Tell us a little bit about any adaptations. Already, I believe you've been approached by film companies. How would you deal with that? There isn't anything underway at the moment. There's just a lot of interest. I think how I would deal with it is by letting someone else handle it. I certainly know that I'm the last person that ought to be in sort of steering something like this. I, my, um, 
my virtues as a writer are not brevity and paring down. They're adding to and, and, and sort of enriching and encrusting a narrative. And, and film is a very different sort of thing. So what I'm hoping for, as I suppose most authors hope, is, is, is to be able to have a say without actually having to guide the thing, should it happen. I think that would be that would be an ideal an ideal situation. I think I I think I will have quite strong ideas about what ought to be in, but I'm also I'm all, the book is there, it's finished, you know, nothing that happens subsequently can affect that. It's always going to be what it is now. And I'm not averse to other people trying something a bit different with it or or at least I understand an adaptation you know a film adaptation has got to be a different thing than the book when um, Portia Rosenberg the illustrator was doing the illustrations she'd somehow sometimes come up with a a view of a character which wasn't quite my my view but that's that's fine that's cool you know other people have different ideas what led you to have the book illustrated? Was this your idea? It was, or rather it was my idea and my agents. I'd seen Portia's illustrations years before and thought they were absolutely wonderful. At an open studio exhibition in Cambridge, she'd she'd shown some illustrations of Oliver Twist and Cinderella, which was kind of perfect for me. I thought then, because I was already working on Strange and Narrow, how wonderful it'd be if one day she could illustrate the book, but I never ever thought it would happen. And when we were originally approaching publishers, my agent said to me, why don't we get some illustrations done? Because just to sort of catch their eye, make them look at this with fresh eyes. And so Portia did about five illustrations. And when the book was sold to Bloomsbury, I said, so what about the illustrations? Do you think you might have some? And much to my surprise, they took very little time to think of it before turning around and saying yes. Most publishers run a mile at the suggestion of illustrated novels. So I thought this was a very bold and clever move on their behalf. We've been speaking with Susanna Clark. Her first novel is Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. Thanks for talking. Thank you very much.